Welcome to NRAE, IICLE's podcast about all things law, big and small. My name is Courtney Smith. My guest today is George T. Dowd III. George is an Illinois attorney and the founder of G. Dodd Law, LLC. He provides subject matter expert counseling services related to the foreign exchange, futures, cryptocurrency, and metals markets, and has testified as an expert before the National Futures Association, FINRA, and the London Court of International Arbitration. He has served on the board of directors of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association, and he is an author on Ickle's Digital Assets, Cryptocurrencies, and Blockchain Handbook. Thank you, George, for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And I was hoping we could start off with a little bit of your background in the digital assets and cryptocurrency arena. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, I think I have a little bit of a unique background um, in contrast to some of the other authors. Uh, and, and I should say, you know, before I get into my background, you know, it was one of the things that was really great was just having the opportunity to work with the other authors. So Mike Frisch and Mike Bresnahan and um, Jonathan Merrill are all just, um, you know, super, super smart guys and very accomplished in different areas. Uh, and it was fantastic to be able to, to work with them. But um, my background is, I think, a little bit unique. Um, so my experience is uh, has been as a currency and derivatives trader. Uh, and as a hedge fund man hedge fund manager going back to 1991 um and then uh more specific to the cryptocurrency side of things i was on the board of directors for the global digital asset and cryptocurrency association um which is a chicago based organization uh in both 2020 and 2021 so um i've been sort of active in the space uh and have followed it very close um digital assets and cryptocurrencies very closely since about uh, 2000, you know, seven, 2008 timeframe. Uh, and so it's been interesting to sort of see the space evolve and see new products uh, come to light and things like that. Excellent. Well, I wanted to start with sort of the basics um, for people like me before I read your book, I didn't really know much about any sort of digital assets, cryptocurrency. So I wanted to start with the basics. And one thing I was really surprised when I read the book is that the idea for digital currencies in general came about in the 1980s. So, yeah, yeah um, exactly. So um, uh, a couple of the of the writings um, that that are mentioned in the book, uh, David Chaum, who was a cryptographer at the University of California, wrote. Um, blind signatures for untraceable payments, and he also wrote untraceable electronic cash. And um, those two papers uh, sort of proposed an outline for um, both an automated autom automated cryptographic payment system uh, and a means to engage in privacy protected transactions. Uh, and that was sort of the basis um, for cryptocurrencies. Uh, and um, look, there's always been uh, a little bit of uh, you know, national sovereign currencies by certain groups have always been viewed um, with a little bit of concern. And part of that concern stems from the fact that uh, they're not backed by it, that that um, 
sovereign currencies, fiat currencies, um, are not backed by anything, which means there can be unlimited issuance. Um, and if you look back at the history of currencies, there have been occasions where there have been hyperinflations as a result of that kind of issuance. And so, um, you know, the German hyper, hyperinflation is one. And more recently, uh, there was a hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, uh, which which followed the same pattern of just um, unlimited issuance. And, and part of the appeal of cryptocurrencies, at least initially, is that uh, they could be designed to avoid that. Um, and so, yes, in, in the in the early 80s, uh, those papers were written uh, and there were a few cryptocurrencies that were introduced uh, that were not successful. Uh, one was DigiCash. There was also B-Money and BitGold and a few others. Uh, but really, the first one that gained widespread support uh, was Bitcoin. And uh, mm -hmm. that was introduced in 2008 uh, through a white paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Um, it was authored by uh, someone called Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, which is where some of the intrigue begins because uh, Satoshi Nakamoto has really never been identified. Um, people don't know if there is an individual named Satoshi Nakamoto, if uh, that is just a pen name, uh, or if it's actually a group of people who uh, wrote the Bitcoin white paper uh, in a collaborative manner um, under the name um, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, but that was sort of the, the start of things. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting that um, just the just the history of it and sort of the intrigue, like you said, just brings a little bit more to this topic that is already interesting in itself. <laughs> so, okay. So um, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about sort of the basics of it. Um, could you explain the different types of digital currency? I mean, you talked about Bitcoin, and that's probably one that a lot of us have heard of. And But I know there are other types and sort of how people can use them. Sure. So um, I think that's one of the one of the problems with any sort of developing um, technology or um, or or uh, industry um, is that um, oftentimes it's difficult to settle on um, accept sort of widely accepted definitions of what some of these things are. Mm -hmm. uh, or another way to think about it is sort of what baskets do some of these different um digital assets fit into. Uh, and so in the, in the space, it's sort of called a taxonomy and um, sort of the different buckets uh, that I think are, you know, for, first we would use the phrase digital assets, which is uh, kind of an all-encompassing term uh, that includes the entire spectrum of blockchain-based assets. Um, and the, the SEC here in the U.S. issued a digital asset report in 2019, 2019 uh, that provided what I think is um, a pretty good definition, which was that uh, a digital asset is an asset that's issued and transferred using distrib distributed ledger or blockchain technology, including but not limited to so-called virtual currencies, coins, and tokens. And so um, when you use the phrase digital asset, uh, to me, that encompasses all of the um, sort of uh, subgroupings of di digital assets that fall under it. And so what are those uh, different subtypes of digital assets? Um, the first one uh, is cryptocurrencies, uh, and that would be similar to Bitcoin. Um, and crypto cryptocurrencies uh, were, were generally defined 
you know, one definition that I think is, um, uh, you know, pretty representative, it was in IRS notice 2014-21, and we talk about it in the book, uh, where they define virtual currencies as a digital representation of value that functions as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and or a store of value. Uh, and interestingly, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but uh, they end with, in some environments, it operates like real currency, but it does not have legal tender status in any jurisdiction. Okay. And so, you know, why is that interesting? Well, um, in 2014, there were no uh, jurisdictions that had cryptocurrencies as legal tender. Um, but since that time, it's changed. So in September 2021, El Salvador recognized Bitcoin as legal tender. And in April 2022, the Central African Republic um, adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Uh, and so that's one of the that's one of the interesting parts of the space is that, um, you know, uh, definitions that rely on certain understandings uh, oftentimes um, are called into question by later developments. Uh, and it's not only definitions, um, but there are new products popping up every day. So um, that would be the first one, cryptocurrencies. And uh, then there'd be stable coins, something like Tether. Uh, the European Central Bank describes stable coins as digital units of value that differ from existing forms of currencies and rely on a set of stabilization tools to minimize fluctuations in their price against the currency or basket thereof. Well, what does that mean? So stable coins are typically uh, tokens that tie their value to an underlying currency. Uh, and the idea would be that um, uh, something like Tether or uh, USDC um, would trade generally one-to-one -one with the US dollar. Um, so the stable coin would be stable to um, some fiat currency and, and generally would be um, a pretty good representation uh, of that and, and trading on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh, another bucket's non-fungible non -fungible tokens. This is a, kind of a more recent uh, development in the space, at least as compared to stable coins and cryptocurrencies. Uh, and these are often used um, as uh, a digital representation of physical objects. Um, so an NFT could represent uh, ownership of a piece of art or uh, real estate or things like that. Um, and in that regard, non-fungible because it actually represents one physical thing um, as opposed to uh, cryptocurrencies or stable coins. Uh, and then the last two, uh, smart contracts are super interesting. Uh, historically, they've been on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, but they have some really interesting uses. I, you know, I could go on for hours about this because I find it super interesting, but uh, you know, some of the smart contracts uh, that I think would be interesting to this sort of audience are um, on-chain dispute resolution, uh, which exists now, uh, multi-signature wallets, which are almost like an escrow solution, uh, and, and decentralized exchanges. Um, mm -hmm. So all of those can run on, um, on the Ethereum blockchain uh, as smart contracts. Uh, one that was in the news recently was Tornado Cash, where um, the uh, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control here in the U.S., uh, put it on, on their um, banned list uh, because it was a mixing service which could be used to launder money. Um, and so that's, that's sort of one that's in the news and also interesting. And it's interesting because, you know, when things run the blockchain, oftentimes there's, you know, no or limited government governance to them. Uh, and that's one of the issues that came up here in, in Tornado Cash. Uh, and then lastly is central bank digital currencies. Um, uh, 
often either a complement to or a replacement for the existing fiat currency of a sovereign nation. So uh, an example of a central bank digital currency, it's normally abbreviated as CBDC, um, would be the, you know, the U.S. is considering or looking at um, potentially issuing uh, CBDC, uh, which would be almost a U.S. dollar equivalent. Uh, you can view it almost as a stable coin, um, but issued by uh, a, a sovereign nation's government. Um, and we go into some of the, some of the issue, interesting aspects in the book related to um, monetary policy and the ability to charge negative interest rates, uh, and also the fact that um, when you have a central bank digital currency, uh, it's also, uh, to an extent, it can be designed as programmable money, which also has some interesting implications. Right. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Like I mentioned, I didn't really know much about this topic before I read your handbook. And now I'm just really interested to see as it evolves, what's going to happen, because it seems like there are new developments all the time. And it's really fascinating to see these things come up. So I wanted to get into issues that attorneys will face when dealing with these types of things. Could we talk specifically about an attorney being paid in crypto by a client for their services? I know there are certain rules, um, Illinois rules of professional conduct that have to be um, abided by in situations like this. Could you kind of give us an overview on that? Sure, again. And and so I I think this is a super interesting topic um, and really one that has only been, I think the surface has only been scratched and and there's not um, there's not a whole lot of guidance provided. Um, But certainly some of the rules of professional conduct are implicated um, when attorneys uh, are considering whether or not to be paid with crypto. So um, the first one is rule of professional conduct 1.1, which is competence. you know, if you look at comment eight, it provides that a lawyer should keep abreast of changes in the law and its practice, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. Um, and there's interesting guidance that has been provided by um, some of the non-Illinois uh, uh, bar organizations. And so mm-hmm. the District of Columbia Bar uh, issued an ethics opinion, it's number 378, uh, where they say that um, they envisage the level of competence in which a lawyer is able to understand and safeguard against the many ways cryptocurrency can be lost or stolen. Um, So, you know, what's the takeaway? You know, the takeaway with competence here is uh, I think if, if an attorney is going to consider accepting payments uh, in digital assets, uh, he needs to have at least, um, uh, you know, he at least needs to consider whether he's competent enough in this, in the space and the issues related to digital assets to do that. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Rule of professional conduct 1.5 deals with fees. And this is an interesting one as well. Um, You, you want to make a a distinction of whether or not um, digit accepting digital assets would be viewed as accepting property and payment as Mm -hmm. a fee or accepting currency and payment as a fee. Um, and so, you know, the IRS issued that notice we mentioned 20, in 2014-21, uh, 
where they say that the IRS is aware that virtual currency may be used to pay for goods or services, and it treats virtual currency as property. Uh, so there's one argument, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. I think there's also an argument that can be made that um, that that certain digital assets, uh, more on the stablecoin or cryptocurrency side, might have more characteristics of currencies than properties. And so, again, it's um, it, certainly it's something that needs to be considered and um, and and uh, not, I would say, not uh, not very well settled uh, in some of the different jurisdictions uh, that have looked at it. Um, one of the most interesting um, aspects is, is the fee reasonable? And, uh, you know, attorneys will have an obligation to charge a reasonable fee. Um, and how, how does that apply in the cryptocurrency space? Well, if you charge a dollar-based fee but accept cryptocurrencies um, in payment of it, well, maybe the fee uh, that you're charging is reasonable. But if you if Bitcoin's trading at five hundred dollars per Bitcoin and you're charging one Bitcoin per hour, let's say, uh, you know that may be fine. But if the price of Bitcoin goes to sixty thousand dollars per Bitcoin, well, now maybe you're charging an unreasonable fee, right? So right. Uh, that's another that's another thing. To yeah, uh, is the reasonable the reasonableness of fees? Um, and again, you know the interesting. The interesting thing is that, uh, as I mentioned, some of the non-Illinois bar associations uh, have issued very interesting um, and, and, and fairly encompassing, I think, um, opinions on some of these topics mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, to the extent that you're interested in the topic, make interesting reading um, and, and certainly can provide some guidance, I believe, if you are um, considering accepting crypto. Okay, great. Another issue that attorneys may face is if they have a client that's going through a dissolution dissolution of marriage. Um, what what are some of the things that could come up with that scenario? Yeah, so it, uh, it and and this is one where um, you know you start to see how um, cryptocurrency can can creep into different areas of law. Right. And, and, you know, wills, wills and estates is another one, but, mm-hmm. um, as it re- relates to dissolution of marriage, um, you know, before the marriage takes place, you know, perhaps cryptocurrencies or digital assets generally are something that you'd want to deal with in a, uh, prenuptial agreement. Um, uh, in the, in the event that, uh, there's a breakdown in a marriage, uh, and it's going to be d- dissolved, um, you know, Certainly, it would come up in discovery. Uh, and one of the things that we talk about in the handbook is uh, the Illinois financial affidavit, right? That's um, produced in dissolutions of marriage by the parties. Um, and and where where are where would digital assets be disclosed? Um, and in the most recent June 2021 version of the Illinois financial affidavit, uh, different types of digital assets would possibly be disclosed in different areas. So for example, section 15A asks about additional cash and cash equivalents. Well, cryptocurrencies and stable coins could fit under that topic nicely, right? Or under that heading nicely. Um, section 15H is additional valuable collectibles and section 15I is additional other personal property valued over $500. And so non-fungible tokens that represent ownership in art uh, or music or real estate or actual physical assets uh, maybe would fall 
um, more appropriately under those two sections, right? So uh, it, it's interesting and developing, you know, just like the space generally, I would say. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you know, it's also can come up in estate planning and that area. Off the top of your head, are there any other areas that it's something that lawyers should be on the lookout for when they're talking to clients? Uh, well, uh, yes, and it would depend on the kind of on the on the types of clients. But mm -hmm. um, I would say that there's still um, there's still a lot of developing regulations on the security side that need to be considered. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So, and again, you know, it's it's developing. So, yeah, uh, we you know we anticipate updating this handbook uh, maybe on a more frequent basis. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. It, it seems like it's a fast moving topic for sure. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about, you said there's um, a lot of other jurisdictions that have, you, you know, really targeted decisions and things like that. Could we talk about the Illinois specific issues? Are there not a lot of uh, like, decisions and stuff like that for Illinois yet? Um, um, like, so, like the bar, uh, bar. Right. So um, as, as of uh, the, the, publish, the publication date of the book, and, and I haven't seen any changes to this um, in the meantime, uh, but I'm, I can say that I'm, I'm not aware that any of the Illinois bar associations have issued any guidance uh, on attorneys accepting cryptocurrencies okay uh right and so i would say that's an area that is uh sort of um ripe for some guidance for okay. sure for illinois attorneys okay and i know in the handbook you had mentioned the illinois department of financial and professional regulations um that attorneys would kind of have to <laughs> look into making sure everything was sort of following their guidelines? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, Illinois Department of Financial Professional Regulation, the IDFPR, um, so they do something interesting, which I think is very helpful, which is uh, you can request a non-binding statement um, of whether or not, uh, and it relates mostly to the uh, Transmitter of Money Act, uh, whether or not activities that you anticipate engaging in uh, would require you to register under the uh, transmitter of monies act. Um, but what's one of the more interesting things there and, and look, it's, it's just, as I mentioned before that, you know, the whole space is developing, um, in June of 2017, the IDFPR issued digital currency guidance. And one of their statements, uh, in that document was that whether or not an Illinois money transmitter license is required for an entity to engage in the transmission of decentralized digital currencies turns on the question of whether digital currency is considered money as defined in TOMA. And so we look to the definition of money and how is money defined? Well, money, the definition is a medium of exchange that's authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government as part of its currency and that is customarily used and accepted as a media, medium of exchange in the country of issuance. And so Whereas no country had adopted um, any cryptocurrencies or digital assets as legal tender 
when that definition was decided on, that's subsequently changed now, right? With El Salvador, El Salvador and the Central mm-hmm. African Republic. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's certainly something to keep an eye on um, as to how that will be viewed by the, um, the IDFPR here in Illinois. Right, for sure. So, of course, I uh, would say that your handbook, along with your co-authors, is an excellent resource on all this stuff. It was, <laughs> it definitely provided me with a lot of insight and information. But could you recommend any other resources for attorneys who are um, dealing with this, maybe for the first time or need to brush up on this or just want to be aware of it for issues that could come up with any of their clients? Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, look, I I think this handbook for Illinois attorneys is a great sort of jumping off point. Um, And then there are, you know, certain industry publications that can be helpful. Um, Also, as I mentioned, some of the non-Illinois bar associations have some, you know, very interesting ethics opinions that they've issued Mm -hmm. uh, on the topic. Uh, And then, you know, to the extent that there are specific questions um, that need answers, uh, you know, there are attorneys who are, um, you know, focus on the space uh, and keep up to date on developments. Um, And so I would say that, you know, consulting with some of those attorneys can be helpful as well. Excellent. Okay, well, those were all the topics I wanted to cover in this. And as I said, a very fascinating topic, and I appreciate it. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? No, I'd just like to say thanks to the IICLE for uh, for asking us to to do the handbook. Uh, It was a great process. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that both I and all the other authors really enjoyed it. Oh, well, that's excellent. Thanks so much for saying that. And I will say thank you to you and your co-authors for coming to us with this project and making such a valuable resource. We appreciate you all very much. And thanks also for appearing on the podcast today. Appreciate that as well. Thanks for asking me. All right. Thank you for listening to NRAE. If you would like to learn more about IICLE, its programs, or its publications, please visit IICLE.com. Thank you.